Fanatsu is a podcast series that features discussions and interviews designed to help educate the Guam community, as well as the rest of the world, about the decolonization of the island and the possibilities should it become an independent nation. Hapa dee, bonus, you're listening to the fourth episode of the Fanatsu podcast. We are a project under the Independence for Guam Task Force. I'm joined today by Monica Flores, uh, Melvin Wampet Borja, and a special guest today, a reporter from the Post, the Guam Daily Post, uh, Tihu... Tihu Luhan. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. Hey, thank you. All right. So uh, last week, we spoke with Jason Datuin of Difference to go over the implications of uh, colonization on food, food culture. Today, we're bringing in uh, Moneka Flores, who um, is part of the Outreach Committee for Independence for Guam Task Force, and uh, Melvin, who is in charge of the campaigns. Um, could you guys just go through a, uh, a background of yourselves and how you've been involved with the movement? Um, yeah, I, uh, I guess I, I started doing work with, uh, I guess I officially started doing some of this community work when uh, we were uh, doing a project with the We Are Guahan group and we were trying to raise awareness about the military buildup on Guam. Uh, I really got involved in that work because I felt like uh, I always felt like the military buildup is a, a direct threat to our self-determination as a people. Uh, you know, the way that the buildup was proposed for Guam, it was a, a very aggressive increase in our population that, you know, drastically affects our, you know, our socioeconomic conditions and, uh, you know, eventually, you know, would have a major impact on our quest for self-determination. So I, I first got involved with that work. Um, I really uh, got my start as an artist. I write poetry, I make music, and a lot of uh, a lot of the art that I create is politically driven. Um, and this, uh, this particular campaign is, I think, of very high interest to me because it's something that really affects every every Chamorro and every person on Guam on, in a very, uh, on a very personal level, a very tangible way. So, you know, I, I felt like it was really important for, you know, me and my family to be involved in this work and, you know, how we uh, as a community move forward. Well, I've been sort of indirectly and directly involved in some capacity. Um, I, like Melvin, consider myself um, an artist, and I've been um, an active artist for over 17 years now in the local community doing all kinds of workshops and participating in a lot of um, collaborative exhibits. And, you know, more recently, a lot of the issues I've taken up include... um, sort of the defense or the protection of ethical um, administration of Chamorro Land Trust issues, um, as well as, and professionally, I've done a lot of work with food sovereignty and other indigenous creative or um, political issues. And, and in fact, we did a project called um, 8,000 Howl It Changed Our Lives, and we used 
creative writing, Pacific Island creative writing, to ground conversations on the military buildup. And that's a project I'm, I'm very proud of. And building from that, focusing on environment, focusing on our relationships with other Micronesian Islanders. So professionally and personally, um, it's something that I, that I think a lot of us do 24-7. Even even being a teacher is an activist, and Melvin wakes up every day as an educator too. So I think that it's something that we do all all day every day. Yeah. Nice. You know that's interesting. Um, going back to well, really what both of you were saying. Um, I'm I guess in the public view, I, I'm pretty new to the to the activism uh, circles. But um, uh, I'm getting my master's in English here at the university. And uh, the focus of my research is on, on activism. And while building uh, a historical context for my paper, um, you see that uh, like throughout the, the different decades, uh, activists have come from all walks of life. And, uh, but the, the main goal that each of them were trying to accomplish through different means, uh, whether it be through uh, closer ties with the US what, um, back then, or even through uh, the uh, fighting against the buildup, We've all been pushing for one thing, and that's sovereignty. And it's interesting how you pointed out that uh, um, even food, the issues of food and uh, nutrition, those are all affected by colonialism as well. Yes. Um, in fact, I just came back from a trip to Guatemala, and food sovereignty was a huge focus of that trip. And I've been very fortunate to have been invited to quite a few intertribal, cross-cultural, indigenous meetings um, in Canada, California, and this recent one in Guatemala. But it's looking at all all kinds of sovereignty issues, cultural sovereignty, political sovereignty, food sovereignty, and um, environmental sovereignty. How, how do we as indigenous people reclaim um, some of the things that have been colonized or um, some of the things we've, we've been sort of disempowered through um, these systems, all these different systems. Co colonization also doesn't just affect indigenous people, it affects non-indigenous people, so everybody is colonized. So there's tons of work to do, even in the language that we use when we talk about decolonization. Yeah. Interesting. Mel, do you have anything to add to that? Or? Um, yeah, you know, I think that, uh, especially on Guam, the word activist is kind of like a bad word. You know, I think that... Uh, you know, when I, I mean, I know for me, you know, I, I grew up around a lot of our uh, our old school activists, you know, like my family was very close with Angel Santos and his family. And you know, I remember as a kid, there was always a lot of uh, a lot of negative attention that was brought, you know, to toward Angel Santos and, you know, the, the group of of uh, activists with Nashon Chamorro. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I always uh, I remember my father would always pull me to the side when he was on TV and he'd always tell me that like you know no matter what anybody says about this man always know that this man is is fighting for us you know and that don't don't ever believe what they say about him in the news and and I you know I remember as a kid I kind of just took that at face value but as I got older and I started to become more actively engaged in these social issues and community issues that affect us I really started to feel what that really meant, you know. You know, we were out there volunteering our time. We were, you know, a bunch of folks who were just regular people in the community. You know, we all had our own full-time jobs, our own family responsibilities, and you know, we literally sacrificed, you know, sleep time with family, you know, opportunities to make money, our own reputations in the community in order for us to become engaged in this work and to you know, really put forward this effort to to uh, enlighten our community, to raise awareness in our community, to activate our community. 
And, you know, as I think that now it's it's things have definitely changed. Um, I think that now activism is not as doesn't have as negative a connotation attached to it. But I still believe that there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of sentiment in our community that people like us are the crazies. You know what I mean? We're the people that are causing trouble. We're the people that are irrational. (laughs) And I think that it's really the opposite. And And I think it's important for it's been very important for me personally, for my family personally, to to acknowledge and accept that, you know, this is important work, that we are making a sacrifice, that this is necessary work. And for us to, you know, to really embrace that facet of what we do is, you know, I think has really been important for our success moving forward and our ability to continue working. And so, you know, I, I think that now, now that, you know, Things have, uh, and I think that now that the the political climate has changed a lot for us, I think that now a lot of our people are starting to realize, you know, how we have sacrificed our sovereignty, how our sovereignty has been taken from us, how we are, you know, truly impacted by our relationship with the United States, the inequalities that exist within that relationship. I think that a lot of us are starting to recognize that there really is a need for all of us to be become activists, to be active, to be engaged in what it is that we do, to not just say, oh, you know, that sucks that this is happening or, oh, that's unfair, you know, like, what are we actually going to do about it and how are we going to do something about it? And I think that that's a really important uh, focus for all of us, you know, even no matter what committee we work with, no matter what particular project we're engaged with, I think that we all have this very strong desire to make whatever sacrifices are necessary for us to accomplish this goal. And I think that now you're, we're really starting to see a lot of our community is, is responding in a very positive way. I think that a lot of our community is starting to realize that we're not just the crazies. We're very educated, very articulate, very articulate and very in, engaged people. We're very concerned citizens. And, you know, I think that's something that is really important for our community because, you know, Getting engaged in activism is not just about standing out at ITC holding a sign. You know, getting engaged in activist work is about connecting with your community. It's about understanding what the troubles are in our communities. How do we address these issues? How do we place them into historical context? How do we move forward from these things? And, you know, only if only when we take a very strong stance and have a real genuine concern for not just ourselves, but the, the people who, you know, make up our community, I think that's the only time that we can truly engage in a way that's going to be positive, that's going to actually move towards change, positive and impactful change for our community. Nice. Do you have anything to... Well, yeah, sure. I, I can add to that. I think what I really appreciated what Mel's saying is is the marginalization of our activists and our and our indigenous intellectuals, the marginalization of these voices, and the sort of privileging of of mm. even white voices in our local media, yeah. which contributes to our own silencing. And I think, you know, while we're doing all this work, we also have to acknowledge that that's still something that we have to honestly address, honestly address how we're being silenced um, in our own community and how certain voices are being privileged. And and, um, and he's right, there is a historic marginalization of our activists. Um, you know, and, and you're right too, Manny. What I really appreciated about what you said is, you know, when you look at like um, B.J. Berdalio or even people like Tony Palomo and sort of 
the you know the idea they had of of Guam uh, political status under the American flag and what they truly believed was the best for their people. And now a shift, a shift in, you know, how we want to renegotiate our relationship with the United States and how we want to come from a, a better position of power of, you know, how we want to leverage ourselves and our choices to sort of say, this is what we envision for us. And, and it's not just, we need, we need the United States. It's now, we want to come. We want to leverage ourselves from a position of power, where it's not we're helpless, we're useless, we're so small, we're powerless. We actually are very powerful people. We come from a very powerful place, and so it's changing that narrative too about how we talk about ourselves and how we honor our own voices. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Uh, I mean, even just uh, like international relations now. It's not just about needing the U.S. or the right. U.S. needing us. Everyone pretty much needs each other, mm-hmm. and that's how international law and international policy is uh, is shaped. You know, mm-hmm. so I think, yeah, definitely Guam has has a role to play on the international stage, and uh, I think we have so much potential. Yeah. For sure, yeah. You know, I think that pe- the more people understand how Guam was sort of seen as a setting for larger geopolitical struggles. And we were sort of treated as collateral damage. Sort of, we were in the background for these larger geopolitical struggles. The reality is, is that a lot of that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. We still are on the battleground in large for in that larger geopolitical um, struggles, whether it was from Portugal and Spain to Japan and, and the United States. This is continuing, mm-hmm. and but now we are. You know, we we're not. We have more of a, of a. We have more opportunities to exercise our agency, to 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 um, to say that we're not just you know we're not just going to take this. We're not just going to be collateral damage. Right. We're not just going to be in. We're not going to be a stepping stone for people anymore. Um, it's we have other um, ways to exercise resistance against these outside forces that are you know that have have really tried to shape who we are have really been have really been these overwhelming forces that have oppressed some of our life ways but you know let's take a moment to see how how we've we've circumvented that circumvented those forces how other ways in which you know we we've we've um, exercised cultural survivorship and our own forms of sustainability and we need to celebrate that and we need to say that uh, you know that that the way people talk about us in such fatalistic terms like our language is dying our culture is dying tomorrows were practically bred out of existence it's not true it's not true so much of of what we have today exists because of the love and the strength of our ancestors and because we were not overcome by these outside forces. You know, we are still here and we're still strong and we are, we will not take anything lying down anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's troubling and it's interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, obviously, uh, I think we're skirting around uh, names, but if I had to bring up one, you know, Balzers and, of course, uh, he, he cited... Um, I think Cunningham or, or some historical uh, text, but basically saying, or his conclusion was that uh, there are no native inhabitants left for Bivakwa to lead to uh, to um, sovereignty, essentially, is what he was saying. And that that's that's so harmful, especially in 2016, to, mm-hmm. to make such bold statements like that. Right, I mean, yeah. looking at things like blood quantum, yeah. are, are, it's, such a, it's such a racist and colonial... A policy in which to call on to people to legitimize themselves as a people. It's it's really problematic, and 
we have to be very careful the kind of rhetoric that we allow to dominate uh, public media and, and why we give privileges to such people such as Mr. Zerzan, I'm not sure. I don't know why he's given so much space. And, 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 and a few other people in our community. We could, we could go on. We could name others. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but um, you know, what we, what we need to do is, is honestly ask that question. Why are we giving these people spaces? And what does it do to not just marginalize our own voices, but to minimize the work that has been done so far? To, 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 dis, to, to really say that, you know, to discredit or to, to minimize, like to, to give China, for instance, credit for the, for the independence movement mm-hmm. is ridiculous. It just diminishes and dismisses all of the incredible and important work that, that, not, you know, that people have done for generations, generations to fight for Chamorro sovereignty. So, so we really should critique that, and we really should ask ourselves, why, why are we even listening? You know, why are we giving it so much space and attention? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, folks like Paul Zerzan, I think, come from a long history of of our, you know, political, social, economical oppression. I think that, uh, you know, the, I think the major issue is not necessarily this individual or the mm-hmm. things or ideas that he brings forward or puts out into the public. I think it's really more about our history of being made to be small. You know, one of the things that really changed my life and the way that I see myself and our people was uh, this uh, essay written by Epeli Haofa called Our Sea of Islands. And basically it's if you haven't read it, I highly recommend I feel like every islander should read this It's basically about how like uh, Pacific Islanders all over the region have this idea that we are small, that we come from these small little islands lost in this humongous ocean, that we are isolated to our little land masses and that, you know, we are not just physically small, uh, you know, as land masses, but we are uh, politically insignificant, that we are economically ineffective, you know, and so we have this ingrained in our minds that we cannot survive without the help of a power like the U.S. We cannot survive without a colonial administration to, you know, govern us. And, you know, he basically argues that this is a this is a very new idea for us, that this is an imposed idea on us, that colonialism has created this environment where we do not value ourselves and our history. And what he basically says was that, you know, our ancestors never saw themselves as small and insignificant. They never saw these islands as being tiny dots in a humongous sea. What we saw was that these islands were where we grew our crops, is where we raised our children, mm-hmm. was where we built our canoes, those same canoes that connected us mm-hmm. to islands hundreds of miles away from us, that the ocean was indeed a continent. That, and he, he refers to it as such, that this idea of like a blue continent, right? Mm-hmm. That we are, if we take the, the expanse of the Pacific Ocean and we include all of us in it, we are in, in actuality the largest nation in the world. And so, you know, for me, this, this idea really changed my perspective and it really made me start to value where I come from, not just this island but what is this culture that I come from and what is the legacy that was left for me and so I think that in 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 a lot of ways I I think what is really problematic about folks like Paul Zerzan is really more that we are the ones who give him power we are the ones who allow his voice to be valid we are the ones who 
who uh perpetuate this idea of smallness because we see what he we see his criticism and we think to ourselves oh well you know how do we change this to appease someone like Paul Zerzan and really you know I think that the important thing for us is to understand that we are not Mm -hmm. small we are not insignificant we are not invisible and I think historically we have been made to be as such Mm -hmm. and so you know, for me, like I, I was just listening to what you, you two were talking about earlier. And one of the things that, you know, Monica talked about was uh, the continue historical silencing of our people. And for me personally, that was a really big driving factor mm-hmm. for how I became, you know, actively engaged in this work. You know, I remember I went to the first uh, the first town hall meeting for the military buildup. And it was held over at the Hilton in one of the ballrooms. Mm-hmm. It was a packed venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, basically what happened was it was our congresswoman, Madeline Berdadio, two representatives from the Virgin Islands mm-hmm. and American Samoa and some military officials. And basically what happened was that they welcomed our people one at a time to give a three-minute testimony about the military buildup. And majority of the people who came to speak about it were our uncle. And what happened was that they were... You know, they knew that they were sitting and speaking in front of an English audience. And so they were struggling to to put these words together in a way that would really capture their feelings about this buildup and how it would impact our people in three minutes. And, you know, so many of them were just cut off and like, thank you for your input. Duly noted, you know, see you next time. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so enraged, like. I felt like, you know, how could they, how could they do this to our people? You know, like, and it made me feel like, you know, like their voices just were insignificant. And so for me, you know, I'm, I'm one of these that like many of us and of this generation that were raised speaking English, you know, my parents' mentality at that time was we're going to teach you how to speak English because this is what you need to be successful in this world. And I think a lot of us Chamorros, a lot of us young Chamorros are raised with this mentality. And this is not the fault of our, you know, I used to blame my parents for this, but this is not the fault of our parents. This is the fault of our colonial history. Let's not forget that there used to be signs around Guam that said English only. There used to be, you know, our parents used to be corporally punished for speaking Chamorro, speaking their native language in school, you know, so this is not just like some new, you know, phenomenon, right? Like this is a deliberate colonization of our people. And so, you know, me thinking about what time it is now, right? And how these, this situation has created challenges for our own people. And so I thought to myself, like, wow, you know, I can say what needs to be said in three minutes. And the funny thing was that like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, competitive poet. I used to compete in poetry slams a lot. And that was the time, ironically, our time limit was a three minute time limit. And so I'm like trained, literally trained to like condense a message into three minutes. And so I thought to myself, why not use this skill, use this ability to go in there and let's take over this space. And that's what we did. I literally gathered as many poets as I could. And I said, Hey guys, let's get out here and let's rock this venue. Let's treat this like it's a, like a poetry event. And let's write poems, you know what I mean? And let's get out there and let's put this message out there. And it was so effective. And so many of our uncle came up to us afterwards and were like, thank you. Thank you for doing this. You know, the things that you guys are saying, that's exactly what we want to say. But we, you know, we don't, we, we don't know how to put this together in this format. We, you know, this, and the reality is that the format was not built for us. 
You know what I mean? The format was a it was literally a formality to say, hey, we, we, we gave you an opportunity to speak. You know what I mean? We gave we, we put out this document for you to read it was a, token. a 10,000 page document for us to read in 90 days and respond to. You know what I mean? It was really a farce. And so when we turned around and pushed back, all of a sudden it was just like, holy cow, what the hell is going on? You know what I mean? And we we generated so much buzz and so much, uh, you know, media attention that like you could not ignore this issue anymore. And so for me, you know, I think about folks like, you know, Paul Zerzan or folks who, you know, put out these like really racist editorials in our paper. And I, you know, and, and I think to myself, like, you know, what what allows this to happen? And I, 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 I always come back to us. It's us. You know what I mean? We we give him voice and i think that what's important for us is that we have to take ownership of this fight and we have to be able to say you know what we will be heard and we will not be ignored and i you know and i really feel like there's so many people out there who are very capable of doing this work the question is when will it become immediate for you Mm -hmm. when is when when will the time come that you know that you can't count on somebody to do it for you. Mm-hmm. When will you realize that Angel is gone? You know what I mean? When will you see that this is our time now? You know what I mean? This is literally our responsibility in this moment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other things at play. I mean, obviously, you know, PDN is owned by Gannett. Gannett is, you know, <laughs> let's be real. Gannett is a racist institution. Very, very conservative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like our media is very very biased. You know what I mean? KUM is owned by the Cavos. Sorry, man. Post is owned by Cortec, right? I mean, you know, this is not rocket science, you know? Obviously, when, you know, when somebody of of another persuasion, of another mentality, another perspective starts to push back against an institution like Gannett, ultimately, they decide what's going to be printed in the paper, you know? And I personally am shocked that they even give Miguel an article. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, they actually and give he has him space. In both. He has it in both the. He has them right. in both newspapers. Which I is pers- great. Yeah, I personally see it as like a way to say like, oh yeah, we're not. But racist. you know, I we think get a spot. See? I think that I think that 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 there is something that should be said for spaces that, you know, are offered for tomorrow political rhetoric and for counter narratives. You know, we are there is a dominant discourse that we are still trying to. Um, talk you know talk against all the time and so we so Maget's columns are, are very important but even earlier you know Melvin brought up Angel Santos and a lot of people I, I hope remember that he, he also had a series of editorials and essays and so um, and so at the in the Independence Task Force we really try to create spaces also for our own community to engage in uh Political re- and small political rhetoric, or indigenous political mm-hmm. rhetoric, and also analyze counter narratives. Counter, you know, and these narratives that we don't get to talk about every day. These narratives that are not saturated in local media all the time, and also other voices. And so, you know, we've given space for for Angit. We've given space for um, Ben Pangalinen. We've given space for Bennett Dunka. And and you know, in a few days, we'll be giving space for Cecilia Bamba. And it's it's great to honor their work and to see how, you know, what their contributions are to the counter narrative, um, the kinds of questions they bring up, um, the, you know, and, and in terms of addressing indigenous sovereignty and, and tomorrow self-determination. Yeah, I really like what you're saying about the narrative. You know, I think that in any in any community, in any political uh, climate, in any uh, situation, 
it what the what the public knows is highly dependent on who controls the narrative and i mean this is classic politics you know i mean look at any presidential election you know the people who win are the people who control the narrative Mm -hmm. you know and and the narrative is is the you know that's the that's the news that's the the part that people take at face value and trust no matter what you know, and, and we got to ask ourselves, who controls the narrative on Guam? Right. I mean, we've already established that PDN is owned by Gannett. We know that the Post is owned by the by Cortec. We know that KUM is owned by the Cabos. We know that uh, PNC is run by Sorensen, right? And so let's ask ourselves, like, who is controlling the narrative on Guam? And the narrative has always been controlled by people who are not us. And so what does that mean for people like us? You know what I mean? Do we ever really have a voice in that narrative. Now, I would argue that we have a very, that we, I wouldn't say that we don't have a voice in the narrative, but our voice is very limited and it is definitely very skewed. And so when we are put out there into the narrative, we are put out into the narrative at that, that whoever controls the narrative's discretion, right? And so for me, the value of this, like this podcast, the value of social media, the value of us having community meetings, of us being able to push back, that the value is that we are now asserting ourselves as part of the narrative. We are saying, screw what's going on over here and your powers that be that allow you to control this narrative. Now we are finding other opportunities and other ways, other avenues for us to insert ourselves, insert our voices into that narrative in our refusal to remain silent, in our refusal to be, you know, unacknowledged, our refusal to be constantly painted as invisible. And so, you know, I I really look at like, I mean, I got to commend you for taking on this project. You know, I I would like to see a lot more of us engaging in work Mm -hmm. like this. I think that like our artists have been very active. We got a lot of artists that have a lot of strong messaging out in our community right now. And I see all of this push as a way for us to assert our our desire to be a part of that narrative. And we really, I mean, I honest, I mean, this is our home, you know, we should be in control of the narrative. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of money floating around around here. You know what I mean? There's a lot of money, a lot of people who are invested in a lot of different things. And, you know, I mean, the PDN's been around for a long, long time. You know, it's not like we're just going to, like, take down Gannett in one fell swoop. But I think that the and but I also think that it's important for us to recognize that, you know, we're never going to get. We're never going to get Gannett to, like, change its policy. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get them to suddenly just favor us and, like, right. treat us fair. And I think it's important for our community to recognize that, that we can't constantly play ball by their rules. Their rules are not made for us to win. You know what I mean? That's just the reality. I mean, look at the Organic Act. The Organic Act, I remember, and my family is directly connected to the Organic Act. My, my grandfather, you know what I mean, was one of the people who was you know, very closely connected in pushing that legislation through. Now, for them and their generation, the Organic Act was seen as a way to solve an immediate, uh, an immediate, uh, in, I guess, uh, a an wish immediate for self-government, injustice. Really, right. too, a wish for self-government, which took 
gosh, close to two decades really for us to even realize after the right. passing of the Organic Act. And so that fight continued even after the passing of the Organic Act. And people like um, Antonio Wanpet were still central to that that fight to still fight for um, for for you know political rights and to vote for to elect our own leaders mm-hmm. after the passing of the Organic Act, which is beautiful because that's what I really even though right now we're talking about a very dark issue of sort of media silencing of indigenous voices, I also like to to, to take a look at other instances of where Chamorros have exercised agency within these systems of media. You know, whether it's columns such as Angels or even Maguettes, or whether it's starting their own magazines such as Tony Palomo or, you know, uh, Manny Chrysostomo. Um, It's when we create these spaces for our own narratives to have a more prominent place. And and this is where we're really starting to write our own history and write our own stories, Mm -hmm. create spaces for tomorrow language um, to be published and celebrated. We are creating access. And that's something that we do all the time, whether it's in print media, whether it's in digital media such as yourself, um, and, and in, or whether it's even in calling community gatherings like what we do with the task force with our you know monthly general meetings. And then with Melvin's campaign and his committee and even in some of, with some of the work we're doing in our, in our committee, um, it's about creating spaces for access, whether it's you know written media, digital media, or even gathering spaces. We, because we really want to engage people in so many different ways, and we realize that not everybody Everybody has access right. to um, everything we're talking about right now. And so we wanted to try to be as open as possible. And we want to try to provide as many of those opportunities as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is really uh, important about this particular work and the way that our task force has approached this work, you know, I'm really proud of our task force for taking a very strong stance on Chamorro identity. You know, that's the thing that I, I think really separates us from everyone else is that, you know, our, we are grounded in this revitalization of Chamorro identity. And I think that it's very appropriate for our community. You know, a lot of our people, you know, a lot of our people took offense to that article that there are no more Chamorros left. You know what I mean? And, and I think that a big reason is because we have a we are a very proud people or a very proud community and for somebody to turn around and tell us that we're not here that we don't exist that who we think we are is a fallacy i think was very offensive to many of us and i think that that is something that is is you know very critical for our our campaign because you know we this is ultimately a Chamorro issue. You know what I mean? Where, I mean, the whole issue of decolonization is to, you know, right a historical wrong, a historical wrong that was perpetuated against Chamorro people. And so I think that in that fight, our reclaiming of our identity is so important to how we move forward. And so, you know, when I look at what we have, you know, what the work that we have done and the work that we are continuing to do, you know, the thing that I value most is this the sense that you know we are we really do want to make this a chamorro campaign and even you know for each of us individually you know we have all tried to take on a sense of responsibility a personal responsibility to this work and whether that is you know you know practicing and learning how to speak chamorro better whether it's you know using local food at our gatherings whether it's you know, making sure that our, you know, our website has the Chamorro language on it, where, you know, anything. It, it, I think that all of these things are, are all an effort for us to 
to reclaim what is rightfully ours. And, you know, I, I think that that's very important for us, you know, and I think that a lot of people uh, are attracted to independence because we really are seen as the Chamorro option. You know what I mean? And whether that's just by default, whether we just got lucky in that designation or not, I love it. I think it's great. And I really think that it's appropriate for our campaign because ultimately, if we're talking about reclaiming the the identity and the sovereignty of the Chamorro people, I mean, independence really is the only option for us. You know what I mean? If we become a state, we now it's always going to be our American identity first. And then we are Chamorros after that. You know what I mean? If we become freely associated, we lose our, we surrender our sovereignty to the country that we will freely associate with, 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 which will be the United States. Now, if we become independent, you know, that means that the people of Guam truly maintain the right to decide what will and will not happen on these shores. Right. What we have to what we have to remind people is that the vote for um, self-determination is not the the end. It's just the beginning that it's not the means to the end. And um, with it, be, you know, comes lots of opportunities. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to imagine for ourselves, for our futures? Um, and so something like statehood is is honest, is truly not a realistic option for us. You know, asking the union permission to join them, waiting for Congress to say, yes, welcome to the union. You are now a part of us. Yeah. I mean, who was the last, <laughs> you know, who was the last place that was admitted into the union? You know what I mean? You read the Organic Act. Right. The Organic Act says right. in black and white right. that Guam will never become a state. Right. I mean, it said that that's part of the deal. And you know also I mean? that's too, the reason why they signed it right. was so that they knew that they all they really are giving up is citizenship. And, while and we may, that's it. Yeah. And while we may come from a position to renegotiate, you know, new agreements with the United States under the terms of a of a, a free association, like Melvin said, it is just another it's just another colonial status. Mm-hmm. Independence is truly um, the the only option for for true sovereignty. Of, of, of Guahan. And I'm saying even Texas wants to be independent. You know? I mean, I, you know, right? yeah, yes. I mean, you got to ask yourself if there's so much, there's, there's so much hype in the United States, within the United States, about, you know, states who are not happy with the presidency, states that are not happy with their relationship in the union. And, you know, there's a lot of states have been talking about it, you know, about the idea of seceding. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that it just baffles me to think, like, if Texas doesn't want in anymore, why do we? And I mean, and if you, I mean, even as recent as Hawaii, right, I, a lot of uh, Hawaii was illegally taken. Mm. And so it, it wasn't like they were welcomed into the union by their right. request either. And um, so I really appreciate what Melvin said is, you know, we we have to address in, the injustices of the past, but also talk about potential injustices that, uh, of the future, what we will continue to experience mm-hmm. as colonized, as, as, as colony, as colonized people, you know, of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important for our people to really look at, I, I mean, Hawaii, I think, is such a great example mm-hmm. for Guam. You know, I mean... You, a lot of people think that, and I hear this a lot, a lot of people say, like, well, if we become a state, we're going to be just like Hawaii. And a lot of people think that that's cool, you know, like, oh, yeah, man, I love Hawaii, you know, it's mm-hmm. great, you know. We can have a jack-in-the-box here, and we have some freeways and all that. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's crazy because I feel like anyone who says that has never really been in Hawaii. Like, maybe you were in Waikiki, but Waikiki is not Hawaii, 
You know what I mean? Go go out to Waianae. You know, go out to to the other, you know, to the east side and, and ask Native Hawaiians how statehood is working out for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that a lot of people in Guam see the vision, mm-hmm. the statehood vision of Hawaii through an American's eyes. They see it through an American perspective, like, oh, this is great. You know, look at all this stuff they have. But look at the state of Hawaiians. You know what I mean? The state of Native Hawaiians in Hawaii. Native Hawaiians are literally, they're completely marginalized. They are, they suffer from the, they are the most incarcerated people in Hawaii. They are the most homeless and impoverished people. They are the people who suffer most from communicable diseases. Mm -hmm. I mean, does this sound familiar? Because this is all Chamorros, you know what I mean, here on Guam. And so I think that if we, I mean, ask yourself, if we, if we are already dealing with this and then we become a state, is it going to get better? Right. And I would, I mean, I would assert that it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I mean, the, the, the example of Hawaii is pretty clear cut to me. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people who are, the Hawaiians who are doing well in Hawaii are a very small percentage of the total Hawaiian population. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the same thing with us here, right? I mean, we got a bunch of Chamorros who are small living Chamorro very well elite. right now. Mm-hmm. The Chamorro elite mm-hmm. are living very well right now. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence that those Chamorro elitists are the ones who really are pushing for statehood. Because statehood will be good for that select few. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like how, you know, the Spanish occupation was really good for the Manateng that, like, yeah. came into power in that moment, you know? And so, I, I, but, you know, the, the rest of our people, I mean, we really found ourselves on the ass end of that deal, you know? And, and I, I don't think that there's any, uh, I don't, I, I, I feel like it's pretty clear. I think that the issue is that a lot of people don't really see how this affects us as Chamorros. They, they, they're thinking about, you know, Waikiki about Oahu, you know, about how, the, uh, you know, the American model has fit into Oahu, mm-hmm. you know. But if you have ever been to any of the neighboring islands in Hawaii, it is not the same picture that you get in Oahu. If you move out to, like, the Hawaiian homestead land in Hawaii, right. the, the people there are not living well. Or even just go to the parks in the North Shore. Who are all the homeless people who are in the North, who right. are all the homeless people And I mean, I, I think, North yeah, and I feel like you should, you know, like, if you, I mean, if you just drive through Haganya these days, yes. I, I feel like it's impossible to, no, to, to not notice the change. And we haven't even got there yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, just in the last eight years, I feel like it, it's so clear that there's A, a lot more military personnel on Guam. When you drive around the island, you see a lot of out of state, uh, you know, like stateside license plates, a lot more vehicles, the traffic is worse, and you see a lot more homeless folks. And look around at these homeless folks. A lot of people think that, like, the people who are homeless on Guam are just our neighboring islanders. But it's not. That is not true at all. Go outside Nevis uh, Flores Memorial Library. All of those people are Chamorro. You know what I mean? There's kids there who are homeless. They're Chamorro people. And homeless people doesn't also just mean people who are walking around. It's people living in housing that's, you know, not considered Yeah, that's substandard housing or people, the hidden homeless who live with, like, a family member. They're just staying on a couch for the time being. You know what I mean? Like, you got, like, you know, a, a... eight-person dwelling, housing 20 people. You know, I think this is a very common thing in our community. And all of us know somebody who lives under these conditions. And you got to ask yourself, this is already happening to us right now. How much worse does it get if we become a state? And, and re- realistically, I, 
I see us if I see I see Guam if, if Guam was to choose statehood, I see us sitting there holding our breath for another fifty years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we're just gonna go ahead and just yeah, we're working on it. We're right. still working on it. We're just gonna keep working on it. It's gonna kind of be like war reparations, and when we finally give it to you, we're gonna screw you on the right. deal. Because that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, my grandfather was involved with war reparations. Ben Blas was involved with war, war reparations. Dr. Underwood was involved with war reparations. And this is Madeline Berdaglia's, like, I mean, this is her trophy piece right here. This is her legacy. And look at how many of us were just so elated when war reparations finally passed through the house. And nobody stopped to look at the build-up chunk of money that was included in that bill. You know what I mean? And let's be real about it. I mean, I'm not I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I know a trick when I see it's, a trick, it's you know? Just, yeah, it's just our people are being manipulated. And it's just so frustrating to see how many people are are buying it and just being taken for a ride. It's, it's, a, it's an abusive relationship. It's kind of like an abusive relationship we have with Congress and... The United it really States. is, and I, you know, I think that everything that has been happening to Guam is just is just slowly setting us up to fail. Should we find when we finally realize that this is the right option, it could very well be too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about Native Hawaiians. Native Hawaiians have pushed for their so- to have their sovereignty returned to them for decades, and now that like now that Hawaii is a state, only now are they starting to create this this avenue for them to, you know, assert their independence. And now, I, I, I hate to say it, man, and, and no offense to my Hawaiian brothers and sisters, but I really feel like it's a day late and a dollar short. You know what I mean? Look at how many Hawaiians are completely disempowered right now. Hawaiians are now a minority in their own homeland. We are so close to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, right now we are the single largest ethnic group on Guam, but we are still... Not like if you put us and then everyone else, we're now the mi- we're still the minority. Mm-hmm. We're only the majority if you split every single ethnic group and you add up their their count. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so ask yourself if we're to push this, keep pushing this back, keep pushing the date back, and keep pushing it back until the buildup is at full swing and you got all these people here ready to rock, and we and we get something to go through like Cabo's plebiscite that says everybody can vote. How does that affect the self determination vote? Not to mention, let's just say that we just take that out of the, the equation and we're going to go back to this native inhabitant vote, right? Just for the sake of argument. And then we vote. And we vote and Chamorros are, the, are a serious minority in our own homeland. How is that going to play out when we are the minority? When there's so many other people pushing back against our, our, indefen- our independence, against our desire to reclaim our sovereignty, how does that affect our ability to achieve that goal? And I think that that's a really important, uh, really important aspect for all of our people to consider is what is happening now and how are all of these things that are happening in our community going to affect our desire for sovereignty? Because I honestly believe that, like, if we don't if we don't act fast and if we don't organize our community quickly, uh, this thing could be way out of our hands quicker than we know it. And that's that's what makes uh, our work here so so dire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground mm-hmm. in the past year with education, but um, there's certainly more work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, can you guys talk about the, the campaign and outreach um, uh, operations or sure. events that you guys have going on and, uh, you know, why, or we already know why it's so important, mm-hmm. but um, 
you know, what can we expect also in, in the next year or so? Um, well, one of the things that one of the major things that uh, we've been working on right now is are the Fanny Nazen meetings. Uh, Fanny Nazen basically means like a place of enlightenment. And so our goal is to bring bring the information to the people. So um, the Fanny Nazen is built so that folks who are interested in learning more about decolonization, learning more about our particular status and how it will impact our island, you know, we basically are asking folks to organize their organize their people, create a gathering, set a date, pick a place, let us know, and we'll come down and run basically run a teaching for your folks. Um, uh, the other, uh, we, we, the idea behind this campaign is really like, a, it's really a grassroots approach. And so, you know, the, I, we want to be able to make, create access to the information. We want to create equal access to the information. I think in the past, a lot of issues that have impacted our community have kind of just trickled down through like, through the media, through the internet, you know, through uh, publications, through documents. And, you know, let's be real, a lot of our, a lot of our people don't receive information in that way. A lot of our people still get information word of mouth, especially our Manalco. And so it's really important that we're able to reach folks who don't access information, you know, like the, like the majority of, of our population, but also to make, uh, to be, to create a, a personable campaign so that it's not just like, you know, some random face that you see on TV that's telling you what it is, but that there's, uh, you know, you can put a name to the face, you can shake somebody's hand and talk to them personally. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a really, uh, a very uh, culturally appropriate way for us to share information because what it does is it makes us, it forces us to take responsibility for that information and it also forces us to be uh, actively engaged and connected to our community. Where it's not just like, oh, I'm going to put out this press release, but I'm, I'm going to put out a press release and then we're going to meet you mm -hmm. and we're going to talk to you firsthand. Um, one of the other things that we're uh, shooting to do is run. Uh, we're going to we're engaging in a billboard campaign soon. Uh, the idea is that we want to put be able to put out, you know, quick, simple, effective messaging that is easily consumable. Um, we also are trying to, you know, be active in working with artists. I think that that's definitely one of the, you know, every every good revolutionary movement mm -hmm. had good artists, good yeah. musicians. Arts at the you center, know? Yeah. yeah, artists at the center. I mean, look at the, you know, look at the the uh, anti-Vietnam movement in the United States. You know, I mean, that movement was so successful because they had a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like some of the biggest artists were making music that was directly speaking directly to that message. And so we want to be able to do the same thing. You know, we want to be able to, you know, engage our artists, our musicians, you know, our, our, our poets, our singers, our songwriters, our storytellers, our chanters, our dancers, you know, engage them in a way that makes this immediate. It makes it something that has to be done now that they are actively engaged in, in working toward. It's not just mm -hmm. I'm not just out here singing this yeah. song at the venue. I'm out here trying to get the word out. You know? There's that video of uh, Hanani K. Trask floating around uh, on Facebook. Yeah. Of her basically saying that um, you can practice uh, Hawaiian cultural dance and what have you, but um, it has to be political. Otherwise, it's just ornament. Right. So. Yeah, I and, agree with and that. And also considering how creating art, uh, chant, dance, 
visual art, spoken word is an act of decolonization in itself. We really mm-hmm. need to acknowledge that creation is an act of decolonization. And so um, I co-chair the outreach committee with Joey Certeza. So I wanted to introduce Joey as well. And Melvin co-chairs the um, campaign committee with a- Angela Santos. And we do collaborate a lot. And um, in October, just just this past October, we held our first fundraiser, Arts for Independence. And so um, we had spoken word poetry. We had tons of great, we had um, paintings, we had jewelry, we had tons of great visual art. We had some books, some local publications, some comic books. We had some local musicians contribute. And it was not just to help us fundraise for things that the appropriation cannot cover, um, including like a T-shirt campaign that Melvin's committee is going to develop, but also to just really reflect how how art how um, is just such an important part of any decolonization movement, but uh, but especially how creation is an act of decolonization and how we should we should consider all of these different cult, you know our cultural practitioners and our art forms in terms of independence, like how it can help build our independent movement, whether it's cultural or economic, right? And so um, we just did that in October. We're planning another one. Joey and I are also planning a series of uh, visits to the Sina centers, the Manumco centers, because um, with our Manumco, as, as Melvin was saying, you know, limiting them on their time is not is not appropriate. Kind of expecting them to come to you is not appropriate. And so we want to c- go out to the centers, maybe do one center a month, sort of do a tour of the sinus centers and also engage allow you know allow for them to ask questions engage with them on some of the things they're concerned about bring some of their peers who have a very clear idea of the vision they have for Guam's political status to that conversation as well and then um, another focus we we definitely always want to go back to food sovereignty food sovereignty and healing and so local foods and local medicine is something that we want to incorporate into that um, into that series as well and so those are some of the ideas we have for the coming year and things that we're going to get started on very soon and um, we're very excited to move forward. And, and those are just a few things. We've got a whole lot of things on our, on our plate for 2017. Awesome. One, one of the things that's so refreshing to see is uh, how, um, how passionate both of you are about the, the work that you're doing. Um, I, feel like, uh, I feel like most of us are. I think this is, this is, a, personal, um, this is a personal thing for, for a lot of us. And it's up to us to find uh, ways for ourselves and right. how we can contribute to this this movement. So thank you. Are there any events happening uh, within the last remaining weeks of this year or in the early part of January that uh, we can keep it tabs on? Uh, we got the GA, our General Assembly, which is our monthly gathering happening on the 22nd, right? Yep, the yeah. 22nd. This Thursday, Thursday, the 22nd. Usually... Uh, we we kind of just shifted this one around because of the holidays, but we have a gathering every month at the Chamorro Village mm-hmm. on the third Thursday of the month. Right. So in January, we're looking at January 19th for that next General Assembly. And um, all of us for the past few months have had several people come to the meetings and sign up to join all of our committees. So in the next few weeks, we are, you know, coordinating with all of those volunteers to work with us to get our, our various projects off the ground and do other outreach. You know, um, it's, it's really interesting because we have all of these great ideas and these big plans and every month or every few weeks or so we're responding to something that's happening locally, which sort of shifts our focus, whether it's something in the media 
by certain people or whether it's something, you know, out of out of the administration or even out of the legislature that we need to respond to and and engage, you know, our community about. And so so um inaugurations happening in January. I was just talking to my co- our co- my co-chair Joey this morning asking ourselves, do we want to have a presence at inauguration? Do we want to maybe start asking these, you know, our newly elected politicians their stance on political status and specifically independence? I mean, we know who some of the leaders are who have been coming to our events and showing up and participating but it's it's not it's not a lot of people, and so we kind of maybe we should take stock of that. Maybe we should start asking those questions and and find find out and hold people accountable um, to know what some of the challenges are that you know is facing our community in terms of self determination and and what their positions are and uh, yeah and how we can engage some support too for our own work. Yeah, so lots lots coming up. Awesome, yeah. thank you guys. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinanganya independent guahan, araba ina fanmatakanya yaman tomoro, pawatatuli tapti idiratota komo unashon, gihilutano. Gini minet gut niha yamanyanata, dani gwina zata nui famago umta motna, ina keke fanmanungo, dana keke fanet don todu itoto siha, ni manyasaga gi ininatano, pawatanat let fetna ida guahan, ni todu inina senyata, kosiki senyata fan latna maulik motna. Fanatsu, hita latmon.